Welcome back to the Community Online Podcast. This week, we'll continue the second of our two installments in our Summer Conversations series. Remember, you can always find us on Sundays streaming live at communityonline.tv. We hope to see you there. Today is the second of two installments of our Summer Conversations series. In these conversations, we intentionally stretch ourselves to have conversations around complex topics. We want to understand what God says through His Word about these important topics, and we've turned to trusted experts to help us out. Today, we're going to have a conversation about racial reconciliation. Our goal with today's big idea is to model how to have a conversation about a challenging topic while also learning how to view issues around race and ethnicity through a kingdom of God lens. It's our hope that this conversation will inspire all of us as we seek to understand the many facets of this tough topic so we can draw closer to God and seek ways to help others find their way back to Him. Joining us for today's conversation, we are privileged to have dynamic speaker, author, and trailblazer, Dr. Brenda Salter-McNeil. Brenda has over 30 years of experience in the ministry of racial, ethnic, and gender reconciliation. She was featured as one of the 50 most influential women to watch by Christianity Today and is an associate professor of reconciliation studies at the School of Theology at Seattle Pacific University. She is the author of several books, including The Roadmap to Reconciliation 2.0 and a new book, Becoming Brave, Finding the Courage to Pursue Racial Justice Now. Brenda and her husband, Dr. J. Derek McNeil, are also the proud parents of two adult children. Brenda, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. We've known each other in person, but a little more, really probably from a distance lately. And yeah. I certainly know your, your writing, your speaking, your advocacy for our purposes, because as, as Christ followers, mm-hmm. I mean, it's really important that we understand how this is grounded in scripture. Give us a biblical foundation for racial reconciliation and why this is so important and also why we ought to be involved in it. Yeah. You know, there's several places I could go. In the very beginning in Genesis, God says that you to the human family, you will multiply and fill the earth, right? And that notion of multiplying and filling the earth actually required migration. Mm -hmm. They would grow beyond where they were. And as they migrated, they would begin to experience different uh, environmental conditions, right? So the migration process, I argue, actually led to diversity. Hmm. And it wasn't by accident that that happened. That was all a part of God's intention. That was a part of God's intention. Amen, Pastor. (laughs) So, and I start there because many people who hear us talk about this actually think we made it up to kind of make ourselves relevant to the current social climate. I want to suggest that diversity was always God's intention, that the people of God are to reflect the image of God, which is multifaceted, and no one people group can express the, the, the complexity, the beauty, the diversity of all that God is. So you see it in Genesis. Where else do you see it in Scripture? Then? Yeah, I believe Ephesians 2 is a really important place to stop, where it says that Jesus Christ, through the death and resurrection of Christ, Jesus has abolished the wall of hostility that has existed between people. Right. And that's gone. And because of that, we are a new household, family of God. We are related through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to model that as, an, as a uh, reflection of what the kingdom of God is like. 
like so that when revelation happens and the Bible says that the end result is every tribe, every nation, every language, every ethnicity, every nationality is gathered at the throne of Christ. For our purposes, let's get really, really clear about uh, racial reconciliation. How would you define that? I would say, because I've grappled with it, yeah. because there's a whole generation of folks who don't even want to use the word reconciliation anymore. Because when you get reconciled, that suggests that you had been conciled. There had been a good relationship that oh. somehow got broken, and now we're going to reconcile it. And many people will observe, we haven't had a real good relationship when it comes to race from the beginning. Hmm. Our story begins with real harm, real violence. And there's no way that we can say we're bringing something good back together that once was. Because if we start from a historical perspective, they're right. There is no reconciling something that has never been good in the beginning. But if we start with the narrative of God, my definition is this, that reconciliation is the ongoing spiritual process that involves forgiveness, repentance, and justice that transforms broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. I mean that. I live by that. And that's why I can hold that word racial and reconciliation together, because we're going after what God said. This is good yeah, God's original intention, which exactly. you may not be aware of this, but our church's mission is to help people find their way back to God. Yes. And so when we say that, we're really, we go all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis, which has to do with, yes, I'm reconciled with God, yes. but also we are reconciled together. And if you understand that yes. from a theological, maybe even philosophical or sociological perspective, when you talk about racial reconciliation, it's a great way to talk yes. about it because that is God's original intention. Preach that, Pastor. No, I'm going to not. And let me tell you why. And I'll tell you why. Because there's way too many people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ who never heard that. So when they hear me speak, they kind of think I'm making something up. Or what does that have to do with living for Jesus? They see this that we're talking about today as optional. All right. Well, let me ask you this then. Um, So when you talk about systemic racism, Mm -hmm. I mean, for some folks, it's kind of like, you know what? Every time you talk about systemic racism, I'll, I'll just be honest, it's for white folks. Yeah. It's kind of like, I feel bad. Yeah. It makes me feel guilty. Yeah. And you know what? I haven't done anything to hurt somebody who's a person of color. Mm-hmm. Why do I have to, why do I, why do I have to feel bad about that? Yeah. You don't have to feel bad, but this is what I believe. I believe scripture. I love God. Really. I'm, I'm not putting on an act. I believe the truth will make us free. And so it's not about feeling anything. It's about facing into truth and trusting that the God who is spirit, life, truth. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. If you tell the truth, it will lead to your freedom every single time. So my answer would be my sister, my brother, just tell truth because truth frees us. And then we become ambassadors of that truth that frees other people. So we have to name the systems. We have to say that this is stuff that actually goes on. And if we don't speak of it, then we can't address it, right? I have not been to Germany yet, but I've seen uh, the historic attempt to make atonement for what happened with, right, the Holocaust. Oh, yeah. There's truthful signs mm-hmm. all over the place. You've been, Dave? I've been there, yeah. In yeah. fact, in, in Berlin, there's actually a, uh, a large cathedral there that was bombed during World War II, and they actually left it 
as kind of a reminder of what happened during World War II and, and also as kind of a confession of some of the mistakes they made. See, this is the beauty of this conversation, I think, because you're not trying to convince me and I'm not, this is just the truth. When people do that, it's an acknowledgement, it's confession. And for us as believers, it's leaning into what Jesus says, what the Bible says, right? Confession's good for the soul. So let me ask you this then. It's okay, let's down. let's use the, the Germans as an illustration yeah. if this works or not. So let's say, you know, I'm a 17 year old, I'm born in Germany. So it's way past Hitler, way past right. all, all the Holocaust, those kind of things. There's an acknowledgement there that there was really systemic yes. wrong, systemic evils. Yes. But I guess I'm hearing you say that as a 17-year-old, I don't necessarily have to feel personally bad about that. I don't have to personally feel shame about that. But I do need to acknowledge that to make sure it doesn't happen again exactly. and work against it. Exactly. As our staff team here at Community, we went through a, a World Vision cohort called May We Be One. Uh -huh. And one of the resources they recommended is your book here, uh, Roadmap to Reconciliation 2.0. And mm -hmm. um, I would encourage all of our folks watching this, get this, read it. I mean, it's, it's a real terrific, just practical tool. And one of the things I love is you give us uh, kind of five landmarks, <laughs> yeah. right, yeah. on this this kind of this road to road to reconciliation. First marker was catalytic events. Event. Yeah. Now, why are catalytic events so important to moving from here to there on this road to reconciliation? Yeah. Many of us intellectually, theoretically know we got to do something about this, you know, but often it takes something that kind of nudge us, shove us, kind of make us kind of go, oh, this is urgent, mm -hmm. right? And so that's what catalysts do. So catalytic, catalytic events are the kinds of things that take it from I should to I have to. In 2014, uh, it was the beginning of what we now call the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Yep. But it was Michael Brown who had been killed, uh, shot and killed, left in the street for four hours. That bugged me, just the fact that a dead body could live, lay in the street for four hours. How soon were you there in Ferguson after that happened? Uh, it must have been two to three weeks or okay. so. And there were still tensions. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't just me. Clergy from all over the country were invited to come together as clergy for the purpose of trying to understand firsthand what is happening and how should the church respond. I went with that same question, not knowing anything, not knowing anybody there, but was really surprised by what I what I experienced. The first night that we were there, we met in the basement of the of a church where some young black um, uh, activists, young people. I'll tell you the one thing that really was catalytic for me. It was when they said um, why they don't look to the church for leadership hmm. when it yeah. Especially when it comes to racial reconciliation and racial justice. They don't even look to us. And they said, we hate your misogyny. We hate your hypocrisy. We hate your complicity. We hate your silence. We all sat there and heard them basically name what they've observed of the church, and we couldn't refute one thing. Hmm. I came back from that stunned because I work with college students. Right. We're called to young leaders. That's what we do. We're we're called to raise up young leaders. And I heard young leaders say, I don't trust you anymore. I have tried my best to regain the confidence of a generation that doesn't believe in us since that day. I want to jump in real quick here. Mm -hmm. You said, uh, I talked about the Black Lives Matter movement starting in Ferguson. It's almost kind of like when you say systemic racism, you got to pause and kind of go, okay, let's talk about that. Because that's a buzzword that pushes people one way or the other. Yeah. Black Lives Matters can do the same thing. Yeah. So give me your take on that, both as just 
as a truth that Black Lives Matter and the organization. I'm glad that you mentioned the truth and the organization because the truth is Black Lives Matter. You know, and there's nothing to debate about that in my mind. It's true, right? And so I don't understand oftentimes when people push back what there's, you know, it's almost like the scripture um, where Jesus says that there's 99 and, and Jesus goes to find the one. The one life matters. The one life. And so, well, how come you didn't go for the 91? Because the one is, <laughs> right? There's, yes, there's 99. And that would be dominant culture. But there is one who's in danger. This one that's off by itself, I got to go get that one. So that's the spiritual sense of just declaring there's certain lives that are being disproportionately impacted by police violence. There's something happening here. And that rally cry just simply said, my kid matters. This does matter. It's not even saying he's not a knucklehead. He, his life matters. And so I would hope that all people would be able to say, absolutely. Now, do I understand and agree with everything? every single principle of every organization? No. So are there probably things in every organization, amen, that I'd probably think organizationally, I might change that. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that the principle upon which it's been founded and the purpose for which it exists is not helpful. And so, that's what I would say. So what I'm hearing you say is, as far as Christ followers, yeah, black lives matter. Yeah. Brenda's life matters. matters. Organization, let's debate that. Yeah. Because they're... they're there's lots of tenants there that we can kind of go back and forth on whether we're on board with that or not. Yeah. This we should all be on board with. I agree. And I would I would challenge us all to find any place that we are a part of our bank. Do we every, do you do we agree with every single thing of the bank? Hey, man, there's times I think, Lord Jesus, I'd have to put my money under a mattress <laughs> if I wanted to find a bank that, that lined was, up yeah. with every single that thing was doing, that I believe. Doing what you wanted with your money in every single way. Yeah. Amen. Black Lives Matter. So, so it starts with this, this roadmap to reconciliation. It starts with a catalytic event for most of us. Yes. Um, and then the, the, the thing that happens next is what you, what you call realization. Yeah. And realization is where you kind of discover this new reality. Yeah. Okay, how does that work? It's sort of like it becomes real for you. So there's a story I tell in the book yep. about a youth pastor. He's white. Good guy. He leads a young black African-American guy to Christ. He's a wrestler. So he's wrestling with this guy because he's a wrestler and they're roughhousing doing their thing. And at some point, he gets this young African-American guy who's a pretty big dude in a headlock and he's got him. And somehow this guy wiggles out, gets out. But in doing so, his hair brushes against the arms of this guy and he lets go with a yell. This young white a youth pastor says, he calls his name and he says, your hair is soft. <laughs> <laughs> so this young guy, this big wrestling dude looks at him and says, you know, yeah. He says, do you know what I was told about black people's hair? I was told since the time I was a kid that your hair would be like steel wool or Brillo pads, oh but your hair is soft. Now, I'll tell you why that was a, a moment of realization. Because he realized that what he had been told all his life about another people group was not true. Mm -hmm. And that opens the door now for him to come to the reality that he has been misinformed. And that if that's not true, what else has he been told about other people? That's also not true. Right. That's how realization works. So we go from a catalytic event, then we go to realization, now we go to identification. Yeah, identification is when you begin to say, like, like in scripture, your people are my people yep. now. You know, I get it. If that were my son, 
I'd be up in arms. And since that was your son, I am as upset for you and I will stand with you just as if it were my son. I'm thinking about Jordan Davis, who was playing music too loud in, in a SUV with his friends. Mm -hmm. How many teenage kids do we know who are in the car playing music? How All of them. All <laughs> Amen, all of them. How many parents expect that somebody would shoot their kid because they're playing their music too loud? See, identification is that feeling that I can see in your eyes right now. It basically says none of them, none of them. And so be, be real honest, when white Christians make excuses for that and suggest that there was something that could justify that young boy being killed, it literally breaks my heart because that could have been my son. And when you identify with another person, parent to parent, that's when you stop making excuses for it. And you say, that would never happen to my kid. And that should never happen to your kid. And so that's what I want to see from the church, that level of identification. I didn't, haven't thought about this before, but, but does it work the other way around too? I mean, so like, so obviously it's reconciliation. So it's two people. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, was there a point in time where you also had to go like, all right, when something happens that's wrong, I mean, that you would feel yes. like them the same? Yes, I had a moment of it at Urbana. I told a story that happened not far from where we are. I used to live in Evanston, Illinois, you yeah. know of that. And the church I went to, Ricky Birdsong, I don't know if you remember that oh, name. Oh yeah, he coached for Northwestern, played in the NBA. He went to my church. <laughs> On July 4th weekend, 2000, Ricky Birdsong was shot to death by a white supremacist who just randomly started shooting people. He shot him in front of his three kids. Okay. I'm at Urbana. I tell the story as passionately as I can, but Ricky wasn't the only person killed. Mm. There was a young um, Asian young man in Indiana who was also killed that same weekend. Mm. And I didn't know how to, he's Korean, and I didn't know how to speak, pronounce his name correctly, so I didn't say his name because I was afraid I'd say it wrong, right? Well, that was offensive to mm. people who felt like I somehow elevated Ricky's death above this young Korean graduate student. It wasn't what I intended at all. It wasn't what I meant to do. So I didn't feel like I had to apologize. But after I heard the criticism and talked to a few people, hoping that maybe Urbana would say, hey, you had your chance on stage, you can't go back up. Urbana said, we'll give you two minutes. We'd love you to go back on stage. Oh, wow. So I walk back up on stage and I look like a lamb going to the slaughter, really. I don't have any notes and I just tell the truth. And I say, and I did not know I was gonna say this, I said, I think I finally know what it feels like to be white when you get it wrong, even though you try so hard to get it right. And there was an audible gasp in the audience of people who heard me identify with them. People who said, God, thank you. Because it's not like I'm just trying to go around doing the wrong thing. Sometimes I'm really trying to get it right. And there was a healing that came that night. So that's an example of my identification there. So we're on this roadmap to reconciliation. And so then the next one is preparation. So you're yeah. getting ready for kind of yeah. lasting change. And this one, 
is there's a challenge here. I think that we got to count the cost of this. This is costly. We're not called to do everything, right? So we spend some time in discernment to say, like Jesus says, the son in John chapter five, the son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the father doing. So the question would be, what is God calling us to do specifically? And we discern that together. Can we sustain it? Preparation is saying, we're not doing this to prove that we're woke. We're not trying to show that we're somehow concerned. We're not trying to put a Band-Aid on it. No, this is a calling and we're going to live into it. And we're going to really, really count the cost of being in this for the long haul. The last uh, on the roadmap to reconciliation is activation. activation. And this is, this is where you do. Okay? Yeah. Where the rubber meets the road and we're going to move things move things forward. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. would love it if you gave like, what's an example of an individual you've seen them get to that place or a church you've seen them get to that place? I've been talking about activation, activation. And before 2.0, I said that it was actively engaging in, in reconciliation. Now 2.0 says, okay. repairing broken systems together. Yeah. Ta-da. Right. And it came from listening to a talk by Brian Stevenson, Equal Justice Initiative, went to college with my with my husband, Derek. So I know Brian and Derek. Yeah, I do. So we were someplace together. He came to Seattle. He was speaking. So we went to go hear him speak. Long story short, a guy raised his hand and said, Mr. Stevenson, do you believe in reparations? And he said, of course I do. But anybody can write a check. (laughs) He said real reparations would be to repair what actually was broken. For example, he said, African-American people were denied the right to vote in this country. To fix that, to repair that, all African-American people could be given the right to vote on their 18th birthday. He said, in fact, if you were an elderly African-American, we'd pick you up and drive you to the polls. That would actually repair what was broken. Hmm. That's what activation looks like. It's in our context asking what systems are broken around us that's leading to people's inability to flourish and what could we do to repair that. Now we're doing reconciliation. And what about a church that's yeah. kind of moved into that phase? Well, I'd love you to talk about what we were talking about by phone, about this new thing you're doing with looking at systemic pro- problems with banking. That's oh. a big deal. See, that's an example of a church. So, Dave, could you please, <laughs> Dave. We're going to turn it around. Yes, could you please share a bit about what that is and how that is an act of reparations, repairing a broken system? That kind of got burst out of the conversation I had with our good friend, uh, Quentin. Uh, Quentin Mumphrey. African-American pastor. Amen. Awesome. You are modeling reconciliation, sir. And um, coming out of that, I had a conversation with a guy in my small group, Eddie Yoon, who's a brilliant business guy. He writes for the Harvard Business Review and other things. And Eddie, he said, you know what? After listening to you in Q Talk, he said, what minority families really need is they need access to capital. And this is kind of part of the realization phase for me. Yes. The one of the realizations was like that the average uh, Anglo, average white family, has about $170,000 in net worth. Mm-hmm. The average black family has about 17,000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I didn't know that. So the realization, he did the research on this and discovered that uh, majority owned banks, which have 17 trillion, loan out only 1% of their total assets to African-American businesses or African-American families for mortgages. Yes. Where um, m- minority owned banks, yes. which have 5 billion at this point, yes. 
they actually, I think, loan out 67% of their total assets. Yes. 1% versus 67%. So his suggestion was, well, if we could just get people and churches and businesses just open accounts in Black-owned banks, move their assets there, we could actually make a lot more um, cash okay, available to both Black families and to black businesses through black-owned banks, and yes. so one of the things at community we've we've moved uh, we moved our money, moved some of our money yes. that we've uh, that we have to yes. actually four different accounts in black-owned banks, and so is our church planning network called New Thing. We've we've done the same thing. There's a number of churches across the country, Crossroads and Cincinnati and mm-hmm. Madison Church, and mm-hmm. several that are that are now doing yeah. that. This is a great example, and let me tell you how it goes to rec- racial reconciliation. Okay. Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street. Yeah the most affluent African-American community with banks and businesses and property and all the stuff that builds wealth. So for anybody who thinks that that the reason why that discrepancy is there is because certain races are more deadbeat and other more industrious, not so. White people burned Black Wall Street to the ground and killed all opportunities that were there for wealth to be passed from one generation to the next. What you're doing is addressing something that was actually broken and repairing it. That's what activation looks like. It's no longer, I got a black friend, I can eat with chopsticks, (laughs) I speak Spanish, we sing worship songs on Sunday in different languages. That's not, we, we have to stop it because Young people watch that and they see it as window dressing. They need substantive change. What you're describing is substantive. That's what activation looks like. We have a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different cultures, a lot of different races that make up Community Christian Church. But mm-hmm. truth is, we are still a predominantly white church. I would love for you just to take a moment and just kind of, what would you say yeah. you know, to a predominantly white church? First of all, I'm very grateful for their pastor. And I mean that. I think leadership matters. And so, Dave, thank you. God bless you. Because the more you model it, the more it's not just people of color who are just kind of, you know, griping. So thank you. I think it also has to do with telling the truth. We have a generation of young people who don't trust Christians in the way that they used to. And if we don't begin to do the things that demonstrate that we can be trusted, they don't trust our gospel. And that's problematic. And so I'd say this to any white Christian listening. I'm a college professor and I'm at a Christian college. Most of my students are white and I love them. I'm so grateful to teach them. And they are so disappointed with their parents. They're so disappointed with their pastors. They don't know how to hold on to their faith because the churches that they've come from don't deal with the issues of the world that they're about to graduate into. So I'm here to say to everybody who loves their kids, we're losing a generation to the church and it's time for us to get them, reclaim them, help us now to give them a sense that we can be credible. We don't have to always be right, but we do have to demonstrate that we're not um, justifying what is unjustifiable. And we're not doing it out of expediency because we want to grab the next generation. We're doing it because the gospel says Jesus is king. And guess what? This is the kingdom. This is the kingdom. And And they know it. Let me ask one more thing. Then I I would love for you to just to pray for our church. Love to. You talk to the people of color that are in our church Mm -hmm. um, and other 
pastor friends that are also people of color, mm -hmm. and a lot of them are tired. It gets exhausting <laughs> to have to, <laughs> right, to have to have these conversations yeah. again and again yeah, yeah, and again. Yeah. What would you say to those people in our church as kind of a word of encouragement? When, when Nelson Mandela was asked how he became president of South Africa, mm -hmm. he said, I suffered my way into leadership. Mm -hmm. Some of us have suffered our way into leadership, meaning our story, our resilience, is needed in the earth right now, not just in the United States, but around yep. the world. So I would say stand tall and, and, and stand in the, in the authority of the narrative of resilience and strength we've inherited from our people. And for all of us, it's our opportunity now to show a world that's looking for healing, that Jesus is really the able to use us as agents of healing and transformation in a world that is sorely divided and broken. And so my prayer for us as a church is that we'll step into that authority because we're the ones that God has chosen for the job. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been really, really good. Thank you. Thank you. Would, would you mind? Would you mind just saying a prayer Happy for pray. for our church and all of our expressions? Happy to pray. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much that there are glimpses of hope. And I thank you, Lord God, that you don't ask us to do everything. You just ask us to trust you in doing something. So, Lord God, by your power and by your spirit and by your might, we pray now that you would empower us to be the people of God on mission for the kingdom of God that represents the truth of the gospel in a way that draws people to a Jesus who is able to revolutionize their lives. We ask you to do this in his strong name. Amen, amen. and amen. Amen.